of Nehemiah. We've been, this is our second week uh, here. We'll be in chapters three and four. Uh, probable, this should be, on, I said this last week, it should be on the shorter side. Uh, you'll see why here as we read chapter three. But as I was preparing this, I was uh, reminded of the book, The Hobbit, not the movies, because they're awful. Don't start with me. Thank you, Lola. Yes. But the book is just so good as a preference to the Lord of the Rings. And uh, you, many, well, a couple familiar faces is in the book, one being Gandalf, if you remember him from the Lord of the Rings. And uh, what's interesting about The Hobbit is he brings together this little band of characters and a hobbit and a bunch of dwarves and takes them off and he wants to help them reclaim their kingdom, their, their gold and their castle from this dragon. And what Gandalf does is just weave in and out of this story. He seems to pop in right at the right moment to save them from utter disaster. And then as soon as he saves them, he's off again. He's got something he needs to do and he goes. But one of his greatest gifts to them was the fact that he brought all of them together. He knew they needed a, a small, quiet creature who could sneak in and out, and so he found Bilbo Baggins. Whether they were young or old, they all needed to be with one another. Otherwise, if they tried by themselves, they would perish. And ultimately what happens is all uh, how 10 or 12 of them that he brings together, and if you're a uh, Tolkien person. I'm sorry if that's the wrong number. But all together, they go on. They help slay the dragon. They get the kingdom back. They eradicate the evil and succeed in their quest. And some of them go home. And what I think, though possibly difficult for us in this particular uh, two chapters we are in today, that we will see that Jesus has done the same for us in the church that he hasn't left us all alone against the enemy. He didn't come and die and then leave without giving us the precious fellowship with one another. We're not alone in this life. We have someone and others to lean on in the most precarious of situations. And I'm hoping that I can show you that today from this. And so if you uh, would pray with me, and then we'll read chapter 3 and we'll, we'll kind of go through that. God, thank you for this time. We thank you for these two chapters. I'd ask that you would uh, use my mouth uh, well to help us in this, that you would open our hearts and our souls, that we would uh, come to understand the book of Nehemiah uh, new this morning, that it would actually mean something to us, even though it seems distant and just historical and uh, there's no uh, Jesus on the surface, and it, it maybe doesn't matter in our minds, but you would make it uh, melt our hearts today and bring us closer to you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. <clears throat> well, if you'd read Nehemiah chapter 3 with me, see if I can uh, do as well as Pastor Tom with all these names. 3 verse 1. Then Eliashib... The high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. 
And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanad built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Mesholam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshelbel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joeda, the son of Pesha and Meshulam, the son of Beseodiah, repaired the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them repaired Malathiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maronothite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harahiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad well. Boy. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haravaf, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaniah, repaired. Melchizedek, the son of Harim and Hasub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section in the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom and the Halohash, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Mekaijah and the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarem, repaired the dung gate. He built it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kol Hosea, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shalah of the, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Beth-zur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rehom and the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kalah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired, Bavay, the son of Hanadad, ruler of half the district of Kalah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite of the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Mashiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, 
The son of Hanadad repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzziah, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Pedadiah, the son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel repaired to a point opposite the water gate to the east and to the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, the Hanun, the sixth son of Zal. Off repaired another section. After him, Meshullam, the son of Bechariah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber and of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Whew. All right. Amen to that. <laughs> Besides the fact that all Scripture is profitable for teaching and is the inerrant Word of God and communicates the amazing history of what happened in Jerusalem, it's always interesting to read something like that. Whether it's genealogical and it's just a list of names or a chapter like this is just historical facts, but we have to ask, what do we do with that? When you're at home and you're saying, I'm going to read the Old Testament, and we come to this book, what do we do? We need to ask, even in, in those readings, what could Christ possibly be teaching me through that? And if you remember, uh, if you were here last week, on uh, the last chapter, Nehemiah arrives at Jerusalem, and he calls and charges everyone around to begin repairing the walls and the gates of the city of Jerusalem, the city of David, so they can be protected. And all of that that was just read in that one chapter and the previous was all done within one year. Nehemiah's travel all the way to Jerusalem, his charge to rebuild the wall, and then all of that, the, the pufirmer, uh, what, I can't even say it now, Perfumer, yes. The person spraying the perfume got his hands dirty. Finally, at the very end, we hear about a goldsmith who probably knows what he's doing and can probably build something. All took place in the year 445 BC, before the year even ended. And what's remarkable, and one of the points in the chapters, Nehemiah did not go out and call up all the engineers and call up all the laborers and the wall builders from all the surrounding cities and say, Y'all, I got some work for you to do. I'll pay you a bunch. We've got all the silver from Ezra. Uh, come build these walls again. It was the people of God, and I think this point that is being made here, the people of God are called together to be on mission in the church. Here, the Old Testament church, here being built together in this physical city. But today, we are called to do the same thing in our church. I know that the church is a funny thing because we're all here. We're all united, 
probably most of us united in the calling of Christ. We've been saved from the depths of our sin. And it doesn't matter if we're in this building or we're in that building or if we're in the park or the woods, we're still the church. And I think it gets lost on the world today that that's true. And I think it certainly gets lost on us and possibly even all of us here at Springbrook. That this can quickly become a spectator sport where it's just something we do on Sunday morning or Sunday evening in White Lake and we check it off the list and we don't think about God the rest of the week. We don't think about anything. Uh, We don't appreciate what Christ has done through his life and death to rescue us from the depths of hell. We just come Sunday morning, we watch the show and we go home. And we've all done it, every single one of us. Josh Bice wrote, Unfortunately, churches have it completely turned around. It is said today that churches more than anything else resemble a football game played in a large stadium. There are 80,000 spectators in the stands who badly need some exercise, and there are 22 men on the field who badly need a rest. I know here at Springbrook, we've all come together uh, through membership, all united around this mission that we have on the door to love Jesus, to love people, and to help people love Jesus. And we've committed to this through membership vows, and we've been bound together under the same leadership and have the same benefit of submitting your discipleship into the care of your soul to each other right in this church. It's not just the pastors that are running around trying to help everyone, that we've committed to one another to help. We all are gifted. You know these people by name here who refuse to allow you to fall through cracks, and they will do anything they can to fulfill any need that you may have. This isn't a silly example. And many of you have been walking with us, and there's many more depressing examples that I just, I didn't want to really go there after reading all of chapter 3. So I thought I would just go back to our house search, and uh, because we're back on the, well, the prowl is the wrong word, but we're back on the prowl for houses, and that's the way it's felt. Mainly because uh, the frustrating uh, part of it, and, and to be honest, probably the, one of the most frustrating things I've ever gone through, is because if we moved here in 2019... A house that would have been worth 120 is now worth 350. And uh, ministry is such a lucrative position that uh, you can just walk into any position, any house, and just buy it. And this is all silly, right? I meant it to be uh, light. And I know a house is just something to keep you warm at night and you keep the sun and the snow off of you and uh, something to boot the kids out into the yard when they're getting rowdy. And I know it's fine, I'm not bitter at all. But my point is that you all have been a great encouragement to my family. You've not left me alone. Some of you particularly have not left me alone about it. But the thing that uh, I've not felt about uh, this searching for houses, I've never felt alone in it. Even it's goofy. Your questions of how is it going calling me and saying, have you seen this house out here? Have you uh, seen that this house way out in the boonies uh, is for sale by owner? Or have you seen my neighbor is selling their house? And depending on who said that, I go, oh, I don't don't know who you're talking about. 
Just kidding. I love you all. Because how great of a gift is it that you are never alone in anything? You're never alone. Regardless of how difficult it is, if it's just a silly house, if it's cancer, if you're battling something difficult or almost unspeakable, I know your introverts are saying, oh great, thank you Jesus for this. This is just exactly what I needed with more people in my lives. But you know what it is. It is exactly what you need in your life. Just as the small band of brothers and the hobbit most needed one another over and over and over on their quest and would have utterly fallen away if they did not have one another, so we do one another as well. And this knowledge of the church as a family unit encourages me because no matter what happens in our lives, like I said, we're not alone. And that's, that's tangible. It's tangible. You calling me or me calling you or you calling each other is a real thing that we're able to do just as Nehemiah calls on the people of Jerusalem to do something with each other, to do something to serve the Lord. There's a church body here at Springbrook, especially if you become members, that have promised to care for you as though you were born to the same parents. You think about that. Like joining in with someone just as you would with your spouse in a covenant of marriage, a covenant of membership, committing to one another that I would never leave you alone in the dark and you will never leave me alone in the dark. You're never alone. I just want to note, though, it might take a phone call. It might take you getting involved in something, like a small group, or a discussion with someone for the church to be aware of what you're going through. If you're going through something that we're unaware of, we're not ignoring you. We probably just don't know. And as soon as you tell me, I will be there. And I know for a fact, the rest of the church will be there for you as well. So don't let something like Nehemiah 3 go past seeing them doing the work of the Lord and think that we have nothing to do to relate to that. Because as you look around this room, we're doing the exact same thing today with each other, especially in the spiritual sense. Well, moving on to chapter 4. I have to talk with Pastor Tom about this when he gets back. Have him read all these. I love my brother. If you'd read, read with me, chapter 4. If you remember this context, chapter, three, chapter 2, Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem. He calls everybody up. Chapter 3, they get to work. They start completing the walls. And then we come to this. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, we, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah of the Ammonites was beside him and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. 
Hero God, our God, for we are despised. This is Nehemiah again. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out uh, from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the res- uh, presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will know or see, I'm sorry, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held, a, held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built the man who surrounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, or God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and a servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at at his right hand. And here we see, chapter 4, we see the worldly response by those who were surrounding Jerusalem and were enjoying Jerusalem. The, the defenses being broken, who were uh, enjoying the city being left unprotected and vulnerable. And they hate the work that the Lord is doing there in the city. And they spend all their energies not necessarily attacking frontal, but coming in and planting little seeds of diversion and discouragement that they could never get this done in hoping that they would just fall apart. But we see the people of God come together under the strong leadership of Nehemiah and giving good instructions for some to defend the weaknesses in the walls while the others build and some to hold a spear while they, while they build. 
Now, all of this bad stuff, and the evil of the world that is attacking those in the city of Jerusalem, this just wasn't bad stuff that happened to Nehemiah in a vacuum. And as you read the Old Testament's difficulties in the whole Bible, the difficulties didn't only exist in the Old Testament. There are bad churches and bad teachers out there in the world today that teach that Christians should only prosper and get rich and get healthy and wealthy and won't have any difficulties come their way. But if we would just read and consider the New Testament, the words of Christ, we would arrive at a different conclusion. I don't want to leave you saying, oh, well, bad stuff happened here in Nehemiah and all the Old Testament and uh, the wrath of God was present and all the difficulties and hardness, but we get to the New Testament and it's all sunshine and rainbows. And so it should be for us as well. Jesus knew that this would happen to those who believe in him now because it happened to him. Jesus himself did not escape evil and difficulty in his life as he walked this earth. In Matthew 4, just after Jesus was baptized by John, he heads into the wilderness, into the mountain. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And where he's at his physical weakness, where most people today would just die from hunger and starvation, Satan comes along to tempt him at that moment. And Jesus was so exhausted after fending Satan off perfectly, being tempted in the most pinnacle ways human or man is tempted, it was so bad that angels were sent to minister him in that moment. It doesn't tell us how they ministered, but that they helped him, and they helped build his strength, and they probably gave him food and water. And that wasn't even the worst that Jesus suffered. Jesus went to the cross to hang in a guilty place as an innocent man after he was flogged and struck with fists and then forced to carry his own cross to the place of his death where he was so weak that someone else had to enter in and carry that for him. There's no promise that Christians will live perfect and peaceful lives in this world and that we'll be perfectly comfortable and the world will love us and the government will always do what is right for us and they won't do stupid things that uh, when they, uh, they won't do stupid things that we hate and then we'll just go on for weeks complaining about what they do. I'm just holding up mirrors for this. This is just me, right? I think that always sneaks up on us because we've all had terrible experiences like every single one of us, we've not escaped. If you're the one or 0.1% who has, something's coming for you. It's going to happen. Whether it was true traumatic events that get triggered at different memories or just bad events that we like to call traumatic, but they were just really bad and we're not letting go of them, or something really evil that has happened to us that... Uh, probably you don't think should have. But we buy into this life that as Christians, we should just be sunshine and rainbows. That's where Paul wrote in Acts 14, 22, that he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 
We should expect tribulations, the same tribulations that Nehemiah is leading the people of Jerusalem through at this time. Could you imagine trying to just build a stinking wall? And there has to be a guy next to you with a spear because someone might pop over at any time. And I want to go back. And I don't think it's an accident that three and four were put together here. But the point of us being united with the church helps us in our times of onslaught, in trauma, in difficulties. We are not lone rangers that wander the earth. We are community members with one another. It's what the church is for, to encourage, that we're to give courage to one another while we slog through this life, to not lose faith. We say to one another, put some of that weight on my shoulders and I'll help you now. And when you get better, you may have to carry some of my weight. We say this to one another. The Christian should expect Satan to attack the church today in the same ways he attacked Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. That he sneaks into a life and he tries to confuse and corrupt and come in through the back shadows and confuse. But I want to tell you that our hope is not in this life. It's not in building Jerusalem. It's not in building the greatest house on the greatest property, much to my dismay. We hope in the life to come. And we hope in that hope through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in the one who provides all in all. That hope given to us by the death of Christ to redeem sinful people to himself. And then through his grace, wouldn't leave us to figure it out alone. He didn't just give us the scriptures to teach us everything we need to know about him and our life and how we should worship him, but then he also gave us the church and individual churches to do that with. I don't think it's an accident that we always find ourselves in trouble the more we begin to pull away from the body. And the first thing that we run to when we are in trouble is back to the body. I want to encourage you not to run away or to withdraw, or to hide, but to stay connected, to be transparent. This is the beauty of the church, that it's a lie to expect this life to be easy and be completely fruitful. Life is grueling and hard and difficult, and I only know some of what you're going through. You only know half of what I'm going through, right? That's how it just works. But God is gracious to us through the church, and I want to encourage you encourage you through Christ plug in don't hide don't run don't play the checklist don't play the Walmart game where I come in and get whatever I need to and then I go home plug in and invest I'll leave you this this is a call from the Apostle Paul from Romans 12 and I think there's there's one line in here that I think if we encapsulated this line as a church body, that we would glow in Jesus. Romans 12, 9 through 15. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. 
Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And then verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Here at Springbrook, especially if you have committed to membership here, let us rejoice with one another as we rejoice and be quick to weep with one another when we are weeping. But do not let one another fall through the cracks. Jesus doesn't let you fall through the cracks. And here we're striving to do the same in his strength. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for Nehemiah 3 and 4. Uh, even with great difficulty, trying to understand what we can take away from this today, I'd still ask that you would move in us, that you would make us better uh, lovers of this church that we would be committed through your strength because of what your son has done to do the same for others, that we would be, as Pastor Tom says, gospel doctrine lived out, that the grace culture that Pastor Tom is trying to infuse in this church would take over, and the first thing that we would meet people with is grace because of what Jesus has done for us. God, we love you. We thank you for this. Help us this week as we move forward. Help us with the things that nag at us and are dra dragging us back, that are pulling us away. Help us in our weaknesses and ultimately help us love you and help us love your church and help us sing to you now. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.